Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by performer Uzo Aduba. You've likely seen her work in Orange is the New Black as Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren or in Mrs. America as the late Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress. Her performance as Chisholm landed her an Emmy last year for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series. On the heels of her latest win comes in Treatment, which began on HBO back in 2008. In this revival, Uzo plays Dr. Brooke Taylor, a skilled clinical psychologist who, as Uzo has said, knows how to show up for her clients in a way she's not always able to show up for herself. Here's a clip from the trailer. I am taking care of other people, but there's no one to take care of me. Is that the Adam? Made it very clear how you feel about him. Are you seeing him again? You grew up in a world of violence. I think this is a coping strategy. I guess I'm just like a little scared. I know I'm not their friend. I'm their help. I'm a tool. Why do you stay? He matters to me. You made choices. I made a mistake. Everyone's guilty of something, but only some of us pay the price. All these people are looking to me to tell them what to do. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to tell myself. 
that's our time for today. The new season, which was somehow remarkably made in the pandemic, is now available to stream on HBO. Uzo, of course, is excellent in the piece, and it's an important moment in her career because this role marks her first leading performance in a television show. The whole program is on her shoulders, and she carries it gracefully, which, given what was happening in her life while shooting, is nothing short of remarkable. You'll hear that backstory in a moment. We also discuss a pivotal day in her career, a formative memory from childhood, growing up in Massachusetts to Nigerian parents, and what her name means and means to her in 2021. For now, this is Uzo Aduba. Uzo. Yes, Sam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I wanted to start with where you're at right now. How are you? Mm, I am peaceful and calm. I am in California in terms of geography where. Um, I'm good. I feel good. It felt like you were deciding whether you felt good. No, I wasn't. You know what? I wasn't deciding whether I felt good. I've made a conscientious effort in this recent life season to really hear that as an authentic question rather than a pleasantry Mm -hmm. and really have like a personal body scan. Like, how am I actually? Like, is it like good to great to excellent? On this show, it's especially an authentic question. (laughs) Yeah. I was wondering, now that this show of yours in treatment is out in the world, where is it landing for you? And what is it kind of signifying in your life in this moment? I think it's um, healing. You know, it's very different, I think, to be part of a show than it is to watch a show. Because whether it's for ourselves as actors or, you know, our people who work on the behind the scenes, directors, you know, Janixos, one of those people. We've had a different walk through the experience already. I'll speak for myself anyway. Um, I've had a lot of the experience already. And so watching a show for me feels like remembering like it's like almost looking through like a photo album you know what I mean because I can you can look at a take and be like oh I remember that day or I remember you know like that was the day they had those really great waffles or whatever you know like <laughs> that kind of a thing <laughs> so the experience of the show it was learning how to navigate through a challenging time and it brought a lot of healing. And I think it also, you know, because of that question you asked, I think it's, it really made me realize, like, how am I feeling right now? And it's okay to be in that feeling and in that space and not feel like you need to adjust it necessarily. You certainly don't need to adjust that feeling on this show. But I do want to sit with this performance of yours as 
Dr. Brooke Taylor on the new season of In Treatment. Of this role, you've said, Of any character I've ever played, this was closer to the bone. It stayed with me as I went home. And I wondered, what does that look like exactly for a character to come home with you? Uh, okay, so starting from the outside working in, I would say, firstly, it goes home with me just from the the amount of material and work that needed to be learned. You know, I've never worked on anything before with such a healthy amount of dialogue. So that work came home with me for sure, just in terms of, like, retention, all of that. But then it came home with me and from the interior... I could see and feel this woman who had lost track of her pain. I could feel her pain and her loss quite powerfully. I knew what that looked like and I, or felt like, excuse me. It really made me have to sit and wonder for myself, you know, are you losing track of your own pain? Had you? Some. I, I right before I started this project, I just, you know, lost my mom. That is a hard thing to go through. It's a very hard thing to say goodbye to someone or how do you even do that? I don't know. I discovered that it's like human beings are just trying to make it to tomorrow. I was trying to do that in some way. And it seems like you were doing that by taking on this job, right? Your mother passes away in November of 2020, and then just 10 days after she leaves us, you fly from New York to Los Angeles to make this show. When you're on that plane, what's going through your head? <laughs> um, well, you know, I'll tell you the first thing that was going through my head was, I hope I see a hummingbird, <laughs> because... I had never heard previous to losing my mom anything about, you know, these symbols and whatever you believe, signs and things like this, people were telling me. All of a sudden, you know, people I knew who'd lost loved ones were telling me, you know, like a cardinal or a hummingbird, that's a sign of someone you've lost coming to visit you. And I was like, a hummingbird? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I've never seen a hummingbird in America before. And so I was like, okay. And I don't know why, but for some reason on that flight, I was thinking about that a lot. My friend, specifically Rachel, had said, keep an eye out for hummingbirds, was the last person to say to me. So I was on the plane and I was like, I hope I see a hummingbird. I hope I see a hummingbird. And I would like be like keeping my eyes peeled like everywhere for hummingbirds, you know, like. The image of you, <laughs> the window seat of the plane. No, no, I don't mean on the plane necessarily. Okay. I meant, like, it was getting, everywhere. Yes, everywhere, like to California. Like, well, I hope when we land, I, you know, I get there. I hope I see a hummingbird. And uh, so that was like very much on my mind. I mean, how do you do it? I, I think that things come to you when they're meant to. And I do think that for whatever reason, this show came to me at this exact moment of my life because I needed a place to put my feelings. I needed a place to put my thoughts. I needed a place to deposit my energy and express and go out. It's not lost on me that it was so grueling to a point that I was almost like distracted to a degree because I spent every waking hour learning lines because we did two, you know, we had two days per episode. I don't know if it was 
actually as grueling as it was or if I made it that grueling, <laughs> you know what I mean, to keep distracted. Based on what I understand, <laughs> I think it was very grueling. <laughs> it was a heavy lift for everyone, you know, and so, yeah, I think that's what I knew I needed and um, that's what kind of kept me, it kept in my focus. And then I did see a hummingbird uh, New Year's Day. Have you always believed that these kind of experiences or people or projects or anything does find you when it's supposed to? I'm more so now than ever, yes. That face you made, which people listening can't see, gave about 90 answers all at once. <laughs> yeah, I do. I really do believe that. You know, I remember watching a million years ago, was it Mario Van Peebles' father? I was watching something who did Badass, you know, that movie. And he was doing an interview and he said something like, God might not come when you call him, but he's always right on time. <laughs> you know, like, so, but I do think that, I do think that things come exactly when they're meant to for you in the way that they are meant for you. And there's no explanation for it. There's no way you can, like, study it and figure it out. It's just like... That's when it was supposed to be. One instance of someone finding you when you are meant to be found comes in your junior year of high school. Uh -huh. Growing up, you never liked smiling in photos. But then, during your yearbook pictures, I believe a photographer says something to you that you maybe needed to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great example, you know. You hear things when you're supposed to hear them or when you can best hear them and channel it in whatever direction it's meant to be channeled, you know. That was uh, the summer before my senior year of high school. And, you know, we're doing our senior portrait pictures, which are, like, more fancy than the, like, regular, like, just gel background, you know, like, photos. Mine's completely horrifying. <laughs> it's, it's buried somewhere. <laughs> I feel like mine, I hope, is buried somewhere, but may not be. But um, I'm, sure, I'm sure yours is excellent. <laughs> well, I was there that summer. It was still summer vacation, I remember. And we took these pictures in the library. I remember this day so clearly. <laughs> and, like, the photographer, you know, we'd be talking, and then he'd start clicking. And as he would click, I'd, like, close my mouth and be like, whatever, in between, like you said, setups, he would say something and I would start like talking and, you know, smiling or laughing or whatever. And I kept doing it enough where when he was clicking the camera, I wouldn't smile. And then when he would be talking, I would be smiling and laughing and just like talk, you know, being normal, regular. And he was like, why, how come, you know, every time I lift the camera, you, you don't, you don't smile, you know? And I was like, I don't really like my smile. Like, I don't, I don't like my gap, you know, like, uh, I don't like it. You're even performing it like you're an anxious teenager right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then I just remember he had his DSLR or whatever, and he was holding his camera, and he was just like, I think you have a beautiful smile. And I remember, like, like mind-blowing, like, feeling inside. And I say this all the time because my, my mother used to hate me telling that story because she would always say the same thing when I wouldn't smile in pictures. She'd be like, stop 
making that face. Smile, smile. And I'd be like, I don't want to, no, take the picture, you know, whatever. And she was like, you have a beautiful smile, beautiful smile. And so whatever I tell the story, she's like, look at, giving this as if I wasn't saying the same thing, you know, like whatever. But for whatever reason, I think I probably thought like she had to say it because she was my mom versus this stranger saying it. And I do, all I know is I did not smile that day, but I remember distinctly going back to school with two things. I would wear tank tops because I also didn't wear tank tops because at that point of age, I also didn't know that traditional razors weren't great for dark skin, more 4C textured hair. You know what I mean? So I would have they had darker underarms at that point. A lot of info there for you folks. And I didn't really smile a lot in pictures with my an open mouth smile. But I remember two things I went back to school with that year. I wore tank tops every day it was warm. And I would smile in every picture. And I'd said, I would say to myself, like, I have a beautiful smile. And it was like me saying what he said. And so I would smile. And so like sometimes on the carpet when I'm trying to be like fierce or whatever and give like face, sometimes I don't want to because I say in my mind, I'm like, I'm making up for lost smiles, you know? Throughout your upbringing, it seemed like your mother often pushed you to accept yourself. Even when it came to your name, you two had a combative exchange. Definitely, for sure. You know, from the minute I started school, I should really say, you know, like it was really challenging for, it seemed, for teachers to. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards i'll save you a seat small business owners this one's for you chase for business and iheart bring you a new podcast series called the unshakables this one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Say my name, my full name on the list is Uzamaka uh, Adba. And so people were not great at pronouncing it. Sometimes I'd get teased for it. Sometimes people would just like say any iteration uh, version <laughs> other than Uzo. And even Uzo, it was hard, so it became Uzo, you know. And I just thought it would be easier. And my, my older sister, you know, had tried changing her name, but I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, as a little kid. And so I'm thinking I'm like new. I'm one of five, right? So I'm three. So I'm thinking I'm like, got this great new idea, like easy. And I come home and I just know that I was, I must've been out playing or whatever, but I know my mom was cooking. I was like, mommy. She's like, eh. I was like, can you call me Zoe? And she was like, stopped. Like mid stir, mid like, I just was like, why? And I was like, because they can't, no one can say Uzamaka without hesitation. She was like, Itakanla to say Tchaikovsky and Dostoyevsky and Michelangelo. Then they can learn to say Uzamaka and went like right back to cooking and was like the end of the conversation. That was it. We were done. But what I didn't know and I didn't learn until later is like my older sister had tried this. So she's like, I've been here. I've done on I've been on this block before. And she rejected your sisters. Absolutely. Who tried for Tony. And it was like, no, it's Oni. (laughs) No, it's worth noting, you know, you come from two Nigerian parents, but you grow up in Boston and growing up in Boston, you said I had a very solid clear sense of self in terms of I can do anything, anything is possible. And then I stepped into the world and was met with a very different idea about who society thinks I am versus who I believe myself to be. And I thought, did that step into the world really occur when you move to New York after college and you start looking and and finding your footing as a performer? No, I think that happened well before. My family does a lot of upstream swimming in terms of what is thought of someone like ourselves to be or be doing, whether that was from the town I grew up in, which was a very traditional, typical New England homogenous town, 
and then this immigrant family, we were already swimming against stream in that way. I was figure skating. Your brother plays hockey. My brother plays hockey, exactly. So I'd already been met with a lot of discussion of how surprising a lot of these things were. And it was sort of boggling to me and uh, my other siblings and my parents. The viewpoint was as narrow as it was because I don't know, I didn't know that any of those things had anything attached to them other than a liking for it. Um, my mother loving and playing tennis her whole life. And that was a foreign concept, do you know, like for people to even grasp at that time. Yeah, so that, like, I already had my toes stepped into the water with that. My parents were really, 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 really keen to impress on all of us that the only limit to our possibility was the one we had in our own minds for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like that we are not to subscribe to any idea of anything. You are who you are, you know what I mean? And who you believe yourself to be. So then when I moved to New York, yeah, and working, then it became even more curious to be confronted with this idea. I, I don't know. I don't know how to say it any other way that and definition of who I am that is so foreign from my experience of myself, you know, and my mom was really, you know, integral in sort of making me hold firm to myself um, because, you know, being an immigrant has all these ideas and possibilities for herself. And, you know, she would say, for example, you know, I didn't know there was anything wrong with being black until I moved to America. Like, I didn't know until I came here that, there is a place where people have a, an entirely different idea of who I am versus who I know myself to be. And so she would sort of really push against that with her kids to ensure that we didn't adopt any of those short-sightedness. What was that different definition that you're talking about in New York? Oh, my goodness. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, Apparently, we have 22 minutes. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> um, anything and everything, Sam, honestly, from what is a voice meant to sound like that comes out of a body like mine? You know, I'm a classically trained singer and a soprano. And if I'm fully singing up, just like free singing, that's where my voice lives. And I remember going in once for My Fair Lady. It was quite simply told to me that if I finished and the artistic director and director saying to me, we did not expect that sound to come out of your body. I remember thinking to myself, what did you expect? I still don't have an answer. I know what I think, but I just remember in my brain thinking like, it's not like, you know, you're also seeing people for The Lion King. You know what I mean? You're seeing people for this part. So I guess I'm just curious what you were imagining I was going to sing or sound like for something that you've called people in for this part, you understand? I just remember being becoming more aware of how narrow the identity of black women were, are. Did the narrowness of that definition in any way impact how you saw yourself in that period? Sure, I mean, I'm not made, I'm not made of Teflon. I mean, I think it did impact even somewhat before, even though it's like you can know something to be true in your heart, but at the same time, you're like, 
am I crazy? Like, it was like, I don't feel crazy, but maybe I am just supposed to be like not singing like this or, you know what I mean? Should be trying for something else. Yeah, absolutely. And because you love what you do and, and I have such a passion for it, it makes you or made me, frankly, afraid to try for certain things because it seemed like this is not for you. We did not set the table for you to join us here. That's the table you're supposed to sit at. And I was like, wow, okay. I didn't see myself so small, if that makes any sense. How could it not make sense when you've said it so clearly? Can I ask you, how does one reconcile that feeling of being small? How does one manage that? Well, firstly, you call your mom regularly <laughs> you, to beef you up because my mom is my was my number one fan and is my number one fan, as she would say. You surround yourself with people who see you and really see you. Like for a lot of the brown girls I know, I know that to be true. The wholeness of you. They can see all of your power and your strength, but they can also see your soft and your quiet and your frailty. You surround yourself with those people who consider the wholeness of your existence rather than just like the minor chords. And then I think you also try to beef yourself up, you know, you have to like <laughs> talk yourself up some too, you know, and just, I don't know if it's mantra or what, but like just constant reminder, like you can do this. This is gonna figure itself out some way. Somehow you're gonna find some way that someone is gonna see you. I think that's sort of like a part of it. And when I say also see you, surround yourself with people who see you, that works both in a friend capacity, but also like in terms of work, working with those people too, really ensuring those people see you. I remember when I first started in this business, here's an example, right? I had met, I had done a show, I'd met an agent who really liked my work. There were two agencies, this show I was doing. They both called me in to take a meeting to see if we were going to work together. And so I go with the first one, and we're talking. We're having a great time. Everything's like, the energy's good, energy's good, energy's good. And then all of a sudden, the agent said to me, like, so what are we going to do about the gap? Are we keeping this? And I remember her saying it in a way that made me think, like, she also had a gap. And, like, we both are deciding if we're, like, are we keeping our, are we going to prank Johnny this weekend with the slumber party? You know, like that kind of a thing. And I remember I had this moment where I thought like, oh, I should change myself. And then I was like, nope, I'm not doing that. Do you know how many years it took me to get to the place to like appreciate that? And I was like, yes, we're keeping it. And then I remember however many days, weeks later, going to meet with the second agent and we were talking and we finished, got to the finish. And I was so sure that this agent was going to say something about my gap. And then she didn't. And I was like, oh, well, what about my gap? Do you use that a problem? Like, do you? And she was like, no, not at all. I think it's fine. No, that's no problem for me. I think it looks great. And I was like, and that's who I'm going to work with, <laughs> you know? And her name, Judy Bowles, who is just the best, my very, 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 very first agent. And realizing, like, you just have to be around people who see you. The mantra you just mentioned, you can do this. This is going to figure itself out. 
There is, of course, a day where you felt you couldn't do this anymore, that it wasn't going to figure itself out. September 14th, 2012. It's the day you receive a phone call about landing the role in Orange is the New Black. But it's also the day you had told yourself prior to getting that call, I'm quitting. I'm done. I can't keep going. How do you sit with that day now? A day of magic, a day of wonder, a day where things come when they are supposed to come because you are going to be around people on a project who will see you. And what a fortunate thing it was to have my first job in television be one where everything about myself just being me, down to like natural hair to no makeup, you know, like to all of it, you know, is what we want. We want to see the fullness of you. Um, and everybody on that show. What a great entree in that way. And that day itself, everything leading up to it, yeah, you know, it wasn't just the work and not being in a film or television. It wasn't just about that. It was, quite frankly, having never tried really for something before because you just didn't see yourself in it. I didn't. You know, we think now we look at the television landscape, it's so different than it was nine years ago. But nine years ago, you remember Netflix was just beginning. You know, streaming didn't exist. All this content didn't exist. And so it was a really, really, really small playing field before. And a lot of the old guard, I think, still existed. And so that coupled with just my own life experiences as well, it didn't feel like, I would say, maybe the safest place or the safest space to play in. It was bigger than just quitting the business. It was like feeling like maybe I have been wrong this whole time about how I see myself. That whole time being these 12 years of acting in New York, finding your voice and footing. And on that particular day, after yet another fruitless feeling audition, <laughs> you find yourself on the train home. Suddenly, you begin to cry. Audible crying, you've said. The kind of tears where you just can't stop them from coming down. When you see yourself on that train, who do you see? I see, I see a young girl woman who is feeling like I'm up against something too big to fight. I see exhaustion. <laughs> I see dreams disappearing for reasons beyond my control. And then I see getting home and then getting that call. I see miracles. I can only describe it as a miracle. Faith restored, joy, and like the mind blown emoji. Like to close it out. <laughs> That's what I see. Last year, on April 21st, you celebrated your mother's birthday. She was with you that day. And you wrote something that I wanted to, to revisit, if you don't mind. Uh -huh. 
My mom, she is a fighter, a survivor, a woman who has loved me to the depths of earth and then back again. My mom has poured everything she has into her children, a gift I am forever grateful for, and know I will never be able to repay. I feel incredibly lucky, blessed really, to have her as my hero. And that line, she's a gift I'm forever grateful for, and I know I will never be able to repay. As we leave this conversation, I thought about how you may be going about attempting to repay that gift in the years ahead in her honor. Oh, I mean, what first-gen kid isn't thinking about that? I think about that every day. I want her to be proud of me. I want to treat people well. I want to work hard. My mom worked so hard when she dropped me off to move to New York. She said to me, um, Uzo, just, I want you to work hard. I've never heard of nothing coming from hard work, which is something she'd always said to us, me and my siblings, our whole life, but was probably the first time I ever heard her say it and I understood it in a completely different way. And I think now in my life, I hear it and feel it in an even deeper way that this woman could cheerlead for me so powerfully because she'd gone after her dream, you know, coming to America. Her American, her, you know, my mom would always say, like, my American dream is for you people to be able to live your dream. And she worked so hard to make all of this possible for us. And so um, I want to make sure and ensure that everything that was sacrificed in coming to this America on her end to ensure that every possibility could be reached and touched by her children. I don't want to waste a second of my life and time here on this earth reaching for anything but that. The things that make me happy, the things that I'm passionate about, the things that make me dream. And if I can do that, then I think I've ensured her legacy. But also... Her legacy as in your name, <laughs> as we leave, my last question was, what does your name mean and what does it mean to you? My name means, uh, it's Uzamaka and it means the road is good. And it's a name that people, if they knew, uh, understand Debo, they understand that like those parents who had you have been through something. They've gone through something, but th it was worth it because now they're at, they're on the other side of it. I think that's true for my life, you know, say, this hasn't been an easy road to this moment. This, that September 14th wasn't an easy road, but I was so glad to get to the other side of it. You know what I mean? It was worth it. My mom, she had polio as a kid. She lived through civil war. She became a widow at a very young age, you know? Um, and it was all worth it, though, because when she moved back to America, she met my dad and had me. You know what I mean? Uzamaka. Yeah, I think that that's what it means to me. Like, you know, you're putting something on your children and my culture. You're placing that on them. And I do think that has been my name has been just that, you know, um, it's not going to be necessarily easy, but it will be worth it. The road is good. The road is good. Uzo Aduba. 
Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Stay safe. our show. Special thanks this week to Ala Plotkin and Madeline Meritz. I'd also like to thank Uzo Aduba. Her new show, In Treatment, is available on HBO. If you enjoyed today's episode with Uzo, you'd probably enjoy past conversations with performers like Janelle Monet, Holland Taylor, Matthew McConaughey, Miranda July, Titus Burgess, and T.S. Madison. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to become a patron of our listener-supported show, visit Patreon.com slash TalkEasy. That's Patreon.com slash TalkEasy. If you'd like to support us in other ways, we just received a new shipment of cream and navy Talk Easy mugs. You can find those at talkeasypod.com shop. If you can't make a financial contribution, I understand these are especially trying times. Just sharing the show with a friend, with a family member, over email, on social media, however you do it, it really does help new listeners find Talk Easy. I thank you in advance for the love. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Eve Gershon and Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Seringas, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Our illustrations are by Krista Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And of course, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next week with the legendary filmmaker, Steven Soderbergh. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. 
Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.